Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. So much glad to be back. Uh, Really missed not being here last week. This is a live interactive program, and we look forward to your interaction. And I know because we were out last week, you've got two weeks' worth of interaction that you have stored up for us, and we look forward to it in tonight's episode. On this Tuesday evening, the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.33. We've got a couple of questions to get to, and then we are going to wrap up the topic of stress that we were talking about for the last few episodes and start a new topic, which is very very relevant going into Easter weekend or Easter week. First question we have relates to a couple of weeks ago. It says, good afternoon, Pastor Murphy. I am listening to the rebroadcast where Brother Nathan is reading the account of Elijah. When Elijah said he was jealous for the Lord, is that the correct word? Is the word supposed to be jealous or zealous? And I believe the verse being referenced is 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 10, which says, And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, the, uh, I checked up the word in the Hebrew language, and the word is kanah, and it comes from a primitive root, and the basic meaning of that word is zealous, not jealous, zealous. However, um, the word is sometimes translated as jealous depending on the context in which the passage is found. But definitely here in First Kings chapter 19 and verse 10, it's also found in verse 14, uh, the word should be zealous. He has a passionate zeal for the Lord, and that's what he's talking about. I think if you read the whole account that's given in First Kings chapter 19, you see that um, Elijah was definitely a passionate uh, defender of the, the faith and one who um, aligned himself with Jehovah and was concerned about his glory and therefore he had this contest where he defeated the prophets of Baal and toppled um, Baalism in, the, in, in, in Israel. So that word really means uh, uh, zealous. But let me say this, um, the word jealous is not always a bad term. 
depends how it is used. It can be used negatively and positively. Um, negative, positively, it can be used when you're talking about uh, valiantly guarding or defending or protecting something that belongs to you. Like a man can be jealous of his wife. Uh, he doesn't want people messing with his wife, and if he sees that uh, male people are becoming too close to her or trying to woo her, woo her or win her heart, a man has a right to protect his his wife, and um, so nobody should intrude into that private territory. It belongs to them. On the other hand, it can be used in a negative sense, meaning uh, being resentful or envious or fearful of another person's affection or something of that nature. So it all depends on the context. For example, God is said to be a jealous God. Uh, that's not negative. He's trying to protect his people, and he wants to protect his people from idolatry. So he, he hovers over them, and he takes care of them, and he protects them from any inroads of paganism. So in that sense, it's used uh, in, a, in a positive sense in the Bible. It's an interesting question. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. Many times, Pastor, I'll just flip in this Bible software here to a more modern translation. Yeah. And I flipped to the ESV, and I found it interesting that they use the word jealous also. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if you check the um, the New American Standard, it would have the word zealous. Okay. Yeah, jealous. It dep- that's what I said. It's, it's a word. The initial meaning is zealous, mm-hmm. but it's also translated in the Bible as jealous. It depends on the context in which it is used here. Thank you again to the individual who sent in that question. If you have a question, it can relate to the topic of stress. It can relate to a topic we've discussed on a previous episode of That's Truth. Or it can be completely new material, not related to anything. And it's just a question that you have about the Christian life or about life in general. You don't even have to consider yourself a Christian or a believer in order to ask a question or to send in a question on That's Truth. You can call and be put live on the air by calling one 462 7420 Yeah, and the one thing I would say, if the person wants to check this out more thoroughly, if they take uh, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, uh, the number for that is 7065 in the back of the Hebrew section, so it'll give you an explanation what the word means there, just in case somebody will check that out. If you want to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four, or you can send it to us in the comment section on the Facebook Live video feed on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. No matter how you're joining us tonight, it is a true honor to have you uh, listening to the program and participating in the program. Pastor, we have a question that's come in since last episode that we did live here. And it says, this is obviously a student, today I got my exam results. I got an 85 out of 100. I am so disappointed in myself. I really wanted an A+. Had I pushed myself a little bit more, I could have gotten a 100 out of 100. I was only five marks away from getting an A+. I feel so sad within. I wish I could have done better. How do you deal with depression of losing the marks that you aimed for and didn't succeed? Well, let me congratulate you, first of all, for achieving an A. Mm -hmm. And also, if I might say, congratulate you for a person who wants to pursue excellence and not just satisfied with an A when you get an A+. 
the thing is that you have recognized that you could have done better and perhaps if you've invested more time in your studies you would have performed better uh, so you've got to accept personal responsibility for not getting the best of grades you can but there's no need to get yourself depressed about it uh, channel the energy uh, that you now consume in depression and channel it into uh, devoting more time to your studies. The only way you can lift yourself out of that depression is try to excel uh, and do better the next time. Um, I, I remember you're not always going to get A's. Uh, yeah. There are times when you're going to think you did an exam very well and you're going to discover you get a B. There are times when you think you did an exam as a B and you get an A. I've, I've been through those experiences. I've met several people who've done CXC and I asked them how, how you did. They don't even think that they've passed. And sometimes they get an A, they get a 1, they get a 2. So it's a very different experience. But uh, do your best. That's the best way to keep out of depression. Uh, do your best. And um, A, in my judgment, is an outstanding credit to your um, application and to your discipline. And I think that your parents should be proud. But uh, again, keep pursuing excellence and um, learn from this experience and then channel the energy not in the air depression, but trying to improve in those areas where you uh, were very negligent uh, in the past. Yes. Uh, let me ask you this, Pastor. Is it true that each of us should, if we try hard enough, we'll be able to get a 100 out of 100? No, that's not that's not reality. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of false beliefs, and that's one of the irrational beliefs that uh, if you study hard, you're going to, to get an A or whatever it is. Look, sometimes um, um, uh, knowledge and our capacity is some of it is inherited there's no question about that you find that doctors runs in family sometimes you find that lawyers runs in family uh, so there's no question there's a, a hereditary part of it but uh, the other factor is that uh, not all of us are given the same gifts and the same gifts, talents for example some people are good at languages some people are very good at uh, sciences and mathematics etc etc I myself was never good at languages and up to now I find learning languages very very difficult other people uh, they find it quite easy that's a gift that God has given to you but don't assume and presume that every time because you've studied you're going to have 100% um, sometimes what you've studied um, even though you've studied that you've not fully comprehended it sometimes the area you've studied is not the area on the exam a lot of things that can happen and just make sure that you've done your best once you've done your best you should be satisfied with yourself that you've actually done your best and uh, leave the results but don't uh, if you've done your best there should be no need to go into depression I've done the best that I can the problem with us is that we always compare ourselves with the guy at the top so um, we never compare ourselves in to the guy at the bottom and, and that is part of the problem where we become so dissatisfied but if you do your best and study your best and did your application there's no need to be embarrassed if you got a B instead of an A you just say I did my best and uh, once that you're satisfied with that move on with your life I know it's the time of year here in the spring when there's a lot of exams for students here in the Caribbean and so I want to ask one more follow up sure. question along this if you have a student who does their absolute best and they get a C, and you have another student who just sails by but they get an A, which one is in the wrong? I don't be sure if there's a wrong there. I, if I had a situation where I had a student in my class that is consistently getting A's, suddenly he gets a C, and the other guy who was getting C suddenly get an A, first of all, I, I would relook at the exam 
something must have gone wrong. And I would probably talk to the, the young gentleman. And quite frankly, uh, I would be disposed, for whatever reason, if I really think there was something legitimate there, to let him retake the test or do another exam. I mean, you just, something's happened. And uh, depending on the student and your knowledge of the student, mm -hmm. I think you could make certain accommodations because it's not likely if he'd been doing consistently A's all the time and then he get a C, the guy who's been getting C's all don't get an A. Something has gone wrong. It's either that the person cheated, maybe they didn't study the right part of the exam, maybe they said something he didn't understand about the exam, whatever it is. But I certainly would, would call him and uh, try to try to help him out because it's very depressing that you know that you're the A student in the class and now the exam comes, you get the C. The guy who's always at down at the bottom now gets the A. Something has gone wrong there. And I think a teacher should be sensible enough to try to make some kind of adjustments to try to help in that situation. Is it a sin for a student to not do the best but still get a good grade, uh, a passing grade? They're not entitled to it. Um, but let's, let's, let's be very honest. Sometimes the... The, the exam is easy, mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know if to say it. I would say that a believer should always try to do his best, uh, whatever exam he's doing, whatever whatever task he's doing, whatever work he's doing, always try to do your best. Uh, I think I said on some last some occasion that when I enter the pulpit, I'm always trying to preach the best sermon I've ever preached. I've never gone in there saying I'm just going to just because I reserve it. Never do that. Uh, sometimes you think you've done your best and you struggle. Sometimes you didn't think you do well, and then people come and say, man, that's that's a, a good sermon, the best sermon I've ever heard. You say, sure, all that. Life is very strange, but I think the important thing is that once you put in the effort and you know you've done your best, uh, leave the results uh, and so on and so on. But always strive at your best and, and never try to achieve mediocrity. Always try to achieve excellence. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live call-in program. There are a number of ways you can interact with us on the program. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling one 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 1454 or you can join us on Facebook Live, the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there in the comment section, you can comment your question, and it'll get asked to Pastor Murphy live on the air. Pastor, we had a video that was sent in, and obviously... Uh, I can't share videos over the radio waves, and I don't have the audio, any of the audio clips here. But it was a video clip about religion in Africa, and the some of the different pastors or some different religious leaders in Africa and some of their teachings. Uh, do you have any comments or thoughts for the individual who sent it in? Well, number one, I find the video was shocking and the aberrant, distorted behavior and the conduct of pastors. And by the way, this was a pastor uh, complaining about the abuse that is going on with religion in Africa. I find that the religion in Africa is a mile long and an inch deep. It's very, very, very shallow. And some of the things that are on the video, these are actually services within the African churches. You've got uh, pastors uh, kicking uh, the congregation you got some on the floor and he's jumping on them you got somewhere he's lifting them up and throwing them onto some benches uh, you got somewhere he is actually um, punching literally punching women in the stomach and kicking 
Uh, they got somewhere. They got the, 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 the some of the people eating grass. Uh, they got some of the pastor touching women in a very intimate way, their breasts, their legs, etc., etc. Uh, it was totally incredible. I didn't even know that something like this could actually be happening. But these are actual um, uh, pictures of what is actually going on in that part of the world. And I, 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 the guy is legitimate in, in his complaint. Uh, he also mentioned that there are those people who are buying uh, protective stickers to protect them from the evil, etc. But yet the 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 the, 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 um, the pastors have got their own fancy cars and they've got their own security guards so they're encouraging people to buy these protective stickers but they've got security guards <laughs> some are buying anointing oil holy oil uh, and he complains about the fact that they're milking the poor while they themselves are building mansions and driving these sophisticated vehicles the abuse the physical abuse was just completely out of this this world i couldn't believe that people would uh, tolerate and uh, allow such things to happen. But they get give you an idea when people get away from Scripture, not governed by Scripture, the principle of Scripture, how they can be easily misled by religious leaders who themselves are not held to the standards of Scripture. So the answer to the African church, like any other church in the Caribbean, is not to be following religious leaders, but to be following the Word. And let the Word be the standard and the sibileth by which you judge a man who's in the pulpit. Let that be the standard. And if he violates the standards of Scripture, he ought to go. The Bible remains, but he ought to go. And I think if people return to the Scripture, a lot of this nonsense that's happening in the name of religion could be put to a stop. But people are no longer uh, following the Scripture. They're more following personalities and charismatic individuals. And they will all be led down a rabbit trail, always be led astray, and find themselves faced with deception and uh, practicing things that are com- completely contrary to Scripture. So you don't think any of those things took place in the church that Paul was leading? Absolutely not. I, I mean, I, I wish that the uh, public could really see the video themselves, and they themselves would, would balk that this could be happening in religious services. There's something else I didn't mention that is on the video that, uh, quite frankly, is I cannot believe that this would be happening in the church. I mean, I, I wish I could tell the audience what it is, but you have to see it. But this is impossible as far as I'm concerned. There has to be an evil power that is creating this kind of a atmosphere and some kind of a nuance and this kind of a ethos within the African church. This is not something normal. And how can people tolerate this kind of uh, abuse is beyond me. Uh, so there has to be something beyond just uh, Christianity there. It has to be some evil spirit involved in these kind of activities. Before we move on to a new topic, uh, let's wrap up the topic of stress. And stress is something that we all face, Pastor. I'm sure that you face it as a pastor, whether it be unexpected counseling situations or even preparing for uh, preaching a message week in and week out. Uh, if you are working in the workplace, you're facing stress, meeting deadlines. If you're a student, we already touched on that tonight. We all face stress at different times. We've talked in depth about stress and different types of stress and causes and symptoms in previous episodes. And you can go back and you can listen to previous episodes by going to the That's Truth podcast. You can Google it, That's Truth podcast, and go to the archive and look at some of the most recent episodes. And they are topic, the topic is on stress. But as we wrap it up, do you have any advice to Christians who are currently stressed out or who will be stressed out by the end of the week? Yeah, I, I want to give a combination of both practical and spiritual things that a believer can do. And I'm not giving them any particular order either. It's, these are things that I think, the, the most important thing I think is a quiet time. 
in in the in the morning uh, with the Lord. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not a morning person, so I'm advising you, and I hope you can be a morning person. I'm a, I'm a night person, but I think it's important to start the day with some kind of a quiet time. This is where you read the Bible and you 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 pray to the Lord. So, reading the Bible is God speaking to you, prayers you speaking to God. But I do think it's important to have a quiet time. I think that can help to calm your nerves. The other thing is to select a passage of scripture out of your what you've studied. Uh, to memorize and meditate on during the day. Uh, find something that's in that passage. Just find some key verse that you're going to meditate on and you're going to to memorize. Uh, the other thing is to try to organize your life. If you are going to work and it's very stressful at work, I think that you have to, to do some kind of organizing. A housewife, for example, might be exhausting. Uh, there are, I've seen housewife uh, cooking, and they would cook the rice and then cook the, the meat and then cook. Sometimes you can put on four pots at one time. And while that pot is doing, you can be doing the vegetables, you can be doing something else. So I think the, you've got to properly organize yourself. Uh, prioritize whatever it is that you've got to get done during the day and, 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 and um, begin to focus on what's the main priority. Get the out of the way, then go to the second, then go to the third. You might be taking on too much in yourself. And this is where I have mentioned before, uh, seek some help. And you might have to need to delegate responsibility. Moses and, and, and Jethro, uh, remember the encounter where he said, you know what, you're overworked. And he had it where he took the job of Moses and dispensed it among 70 different elders who would help Moses. That is The other thing is that um, you, you might need some good Christian music to listen to. Uh, I don't talk to one that keeps the, the decibels so high that you can't even concentrate and you can't even think. But good, godly, soothing, meaningful music that has words that have substance to it. That can be a very, very soothing exercise. Remember in the case of Saul, how David played and it calmed the spirit of Saul and we're told that the evil spirit left him. Um, the other thing is um, uh, exercise may be something you need to look at. Uh, again, if you've not been exercising and you've got all this tension in you, you need to release it at some point in time. And you might find that if you're not having, if you don't like to run, you might be able to buy one of these machines where you stay in your home and you do the running within your home, uh, etc. Or you might take a ride, but it's, it's important to do that. Uh, the other thing you might need to do is to take some breaks if you're at, at work and you're trying to kill too much thing within one hour, two hours. Uh, take a five minutes break, periodically go back, take a five minute break, etc. That would help to lead, lead the tension. Rest, adequate sleep. You cannot be, you know, don't take the job, work home, and, and when you should be sleeping, you're going through and the books in your mind, and you're thinking about this this person you're going to meet with, this sale person you're going to meet with, this this project you've got. So when you should be sleeping, you're actually doing your work in your mind, but you need adequate sleep. The other thing you might look at is diet. Uh, that is something that you might need to look at. You might be missing some key elements in your dam, some vitamins or some minerals. And if you don't take, uh, at a certain age, you don't take vitamins, it, your body doesn't get all that it needs. So you might need to look at that. Uh, the other thing you might need to ask yourself, really, if you're, you're, you're going through stress, does my skill match the task that I've been assigned to? Okay, do I have a, 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 um, a, a peg in a, a square hole? Uh, you know, you've got to face that reality. You might be at work where you have not kept pace with technology. And as a result of that, now you've got so much stress because you're not familiar with all these software packages, etc. But the job requires it. If you don't have the skill, you're just going to put yourself into stress. And it's hard to take a demotion. Uh, but at the same time, if you don't have the skill set, you're just putting yourself up to, to, to great tension. 
uh, can you use technology to take off a lot of the work that you're doing uh, to make it faster or make it easier that is the thing that you need to look at um, and then is there any aspect of your business or what you're doing that you can farm out maybe the marketing part of it or maybe the accounting part of it and concentrate on those periods where you've got your expertise and got your skill um, and the other thing is you might need to just specialize in what you're doing as opposed to trying to be a jack of all trades focus on whatever this one thing that you're good at so that you don't uh, just burn yourself out and one last thing I would suggest to Christians uh, who are finding it difficult in the workplace, whether you own a business, what about the possibility of starting a Christian association or business association where you guys can meet together and talk over the issues you're having, the problems you're having, the stress you're having, what solutions this other person has, has found out, and share uh, things that uh, could make work easy, etc. I, I do not know of any in the, in the, in the, in the uh, antique. I don't know of any in Barbados. There may be some. But if there wasn't, and I was a businessman going through such kind of stress, certainly there are Christian business people out there that we can get together once in a while, maybe go for lunch and chit-chat on the weekend or something. Uh, those are just some general concepts that are both practical and spiritual uh, and I think there are some of these that you can take and, and uh, use within your life that would help you to ease the stress that you're going through Is it a sin to face stress? No, I, I, look, as I mentioned before there's something called that people call eustress, EU stress and bad stress. Eustress is something that um, the body needs a lot of people would never do certain things unless they have a little bit of stress. And uh, it's that that motivates you. So it's not bad to have stress. It's when it becomes so overwhelming that you can't function and it destroys the relations between yourself and other people and make other people mis miserable. And of course, when you do that, it's a bad testimony for Christ. So therefore, it impacts your, your uh, capacity to speak to those people and share your faith with them. For the individual who just tuned in for the very first time to That's Truth tonight and says, Pastor Murphy, Stress has no negative effect on me. I face a lot of stress, but I'm just going to keep plugging along with full stress. Pastor, any words of warning? I would tell you if it's not affecting you, and I am not too sure you have stress, you may have something else, but uh, <laughs> if it's not affecting you, I can say to you, whatever you're doing, uh, let other people into the secret of it, but you're an unusual person because I, uh, I know that every some point in time, we all come to some stress point that uh, it exhausts us. And especially if we've been very diligent and faithful at what we're doing, um, it, it affects us at some point in time. Are there some unknown or unexpected stresses, results of stress that will catch up with us down the road, like it could cause certain illnesses? For example, if you have um, overworking and you're not sleeping, you might be able to, some people say, I only need three hours, four hours, but it's going to catch up with you. And you can never get back sleep. So at some point in time, it's going to affect you. And I'm not too sure if people are aware of this, but if you are not getting sufficient sleep and you do it for a prolonged period of time, you can have the same effects as if you are on a drug. Mm. You can hallucinate, you can hear things, you can see things. It has the same negative effect. Any doctor will tell you that. So you've got to have your sleep at some point in time. So if you're not getting it, eventually it is going to take its toll on you. Thank you for listening to That's Truth on this Tuesday evening. We hope that some of the advice that Pastor has given in the t area of stress, whether it be a previous episode or the summation of the topic tonight, has been beneficial to you. Material that you can apply to your life starting today and going throughout the rest of your life. Having a quiet time meditating on scripture and memorizing yeah. it. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, but I'm very leery at mentioning it. Um, 
there are breathing exercises you can do. Uh, I have that that certain uh, five and you know out long, five short, whatever it is. There are uh, those kind of exercises that have been proven uh, scientifically to help to reduce stress. My reason for being reluctant to mention that is, as I told you before, the people uh, link that with yoga and they get in, involved in yoga where they're using these mantras, which are really names of Hebrew, uh, Hindu gods. And uh, they're trying to, reinforce, uh, trying to release what is called the Kangalini force at the spine, which is rolled up in the form of a coil, of a snake. All of that is evil. That is occultism. So I'm very watchful of making those kind of statements because I'm not wanting people to think that I'm endorsing yoga and other forms of Eastern religions, which puts a lot of emphasis on breathing mechanisms. But they do have an effect. If you can strip it of uh, these uh, spiritual elements to it that are involved in these Eastern cults, uh, <coughs> it might be very helpful to some people. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8 p.m. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program. If you have a question on any topic, maybe a question that someone at work asked you today, maybe someone on the bus was mocking you for being a Christian and brought up a particular question that you didn't have an answer to, or maybe you feel like there's got to be a better answer to it, feel free to call in and we would love to help answer your question from a biblical worldview. Your question, we're not here to argue with you. We are. It's a safe place for you to ask your question, and Pastor will answer it to the best of his ability using Scripture. You can call in and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can join us on Facebook Live, the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and you can comment right there on your device when you are watching the Facebook Live video feed, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner live on the air. Now we are going to delve into a new topic that ties right into the Easter weekend. It's that of... The Resurrection of Christ. Pastor, any introductory comments that you want to make to set the stage for the rest of our discussion for the next hour? Well, I would just make about three quick remarks. Uh, One would be uh, that it's essential miracle of the New Testament. And uh, if you can believe in the resurrection of our Lord, there's no other miracle in the Bible that would become impossible. Okay. The other thing is that it's the central fact of Christianity. If you can disprove or undermine belief in the resurrection and discount it, you have completely dismantled the entire structure of biblical Christianity. Everything hangs on that great truth. The third thing is the most important fact in history, and it's the most certain fact of history. There's no other ancient historical fact that has more evidence for it than the resurrection. Uh, That is a fact um, even within legal jurisprudence. Those who are lawyers and who have studied this matter and examined the evidence, uh, the the proof is irrefutable, and the evidence is so sublime that you can't contest it. So people who uh, today would deny or reject the resurrection, uh, quite frankly, they're not even aware of the, the body of evidence and the forensic use of the evidence and how adequate it is and how satisfactory it would be even in law courts today. 
You mentioned the the legal side of things, and it just drew me back to, is it McDowell that wrote? Uh, Josh McDowell. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I remember when I was begin reading his book, he was talking about how he became a believer. And correct me if I'm wrong, I mm-hmm. believe he was challenged to prove Christianity wrong from a legal lawyer standpoint. Yeah. And he spent years studying and traveling and ended up realizing that Christianity, the Christ was the answer and that Christ did live. Yeah. The other thing is that out of that, he produced two major works. Yeah. Evidence that demands a verdict, volume one. Evidence that demands a verdict, volume two. And uh, he has in that, uh, those two books, I would recommend two of the greatest books in apology, Christian apology. He uh, documents um, very detailed um, some of the most outstanding legal scholars in the world who have looked at the evidence and came to the conclusion that the the uh, resurrection of Christ is irrefutable in terms of scientific evidence and evidence that was stand up in courts. So it's not, not a surprise to me that uh, he would have become a Christian after that. Uh, along that same line, in 1930, there was a young British barrister uh, who was a trial lawyer. Uh, his name was Frank Morrison who decided that he was going to completely dismantle and disprove and destroy Christianity. And he couldn't wait until he was able to do that. So after a while, he got a period of time and he decided that he's going to investigate this whole matter. And uh, he examined the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, the biblical documents, the historical documents, and what the church fathers, etc. said. And he uh, came up with a book, and the title of the book is who moved who, who moved the stone and the first chapter is this the book that refused to be written he became converted he became a christian the evidence was so overwhelming mm. he turned to the lord and became a christian and that book can still be purchased uh, if you go online by the way uh, you can look for that book it's called who moved the stone and it's by the guy frank morrison a barrister a lawyer a trial lawyer and uh, the evidence was just there and the whole book is about why the resurrection of christ is true and irrefutable and if you are listening to us tonight and you say, I don't claim to be a Christian, I don't claim to be a believer, that's just a bunch of nonsense, it's a fairy tale. Pastor, what advice would you give to that individual in relation to eternity? Well, I would say to people who bring those kind of opposition, most of them have never read the Bible themselves. They're just regurgitating. They become parrots. Somebody say something, they do it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I would say to those people, uh, do not jettison the uh, the resurrection Christ in the Bible until you yourself have read the Bible. So I would challenge you that before you come to your conclusion, get into the Bible and read the Bible for yourself. Now I would recommend if you're not a person who is familiar with the uh, the language, the old English language, get a good modern translation. The New English Version, the NIV, get the New American Standard, um, but get a book that is uh, internationally recognized as an impartial objective translation and let that be the standard. So start reading, start reading, and start reading. And uh, before you jettison or abandon Christianity or what you, you come to a position, just read the Bible for yourself. Don't l- let people say what. Well. And while you're going to read the Bible, uh, do one thing. Uh, pray and tell God, if there is a God, 
reveal your truth to me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Lord, I, I, I'm not too sure if you exist. I'm not too sure what to believe. But if you are true and living, and you're the true and living God, I want you to confirm that this is your word. Just ask the Lord to do that uh, for you. All right, Pastor, I'll take you up on that challenge. Says the listener, where should I start reading in my Bible? Well, it, it depends, quite frankly. Um, if you want to go back to... If you have doubts about creation and stuff like that, you might want to start in Genesis. But I would normally recommend that you start in the book of John. Uh, I think that's one of the great... Uh, and it's ver John is a very simple writer. Very profound, but very, very, very simple. And the kind of language that he used is well within the, uh, the vocabulary of the average person. I would recommend that. That's the first one I would recommend. And read the other Gospels, etc., and uh, read that through and then maybe go back to Genesis and find out what Genesis teaches as well. But I would recommend you start with John, the, the other um, Gospels, which are sure that there's no collusion uh, between the Gospel writers. They write from a different angle and they in include uh, certain parts that are not included in the other parts. All of them have certain um, miracles and certain parables that are in every gospel, but some of them uh, select the material according to what was the design for which they're writing that particular book. That's what I would recommend. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.08. Pastor, what would you say was the nature of Christ's resurrection? Well, when you come to the resurrection, uh, there are at least three things that we, we need to be very, very clear about the resurrection. The first one, obviously, is that it was an actual resurrection, that Jesus had literally died and that he was physically raised from the dead. So this is not a... Uh, this is not a resuscitation. We'll come to that because there are some religious liberals who said that Jesus never died. He went into a swoon and he went into the, uh, the cave where he was buried and the cold gases and the fresh air re revived him and he walked away. So, so we need to understand uh, this is not, this is, this is, we've got to be very, very clear that there was a physical, literal death of Christ and that there was an actual resurrection of Christ. That's the first thing that is important about the resurrection of Christ. Second to, secondly, it was an actual bodily resurrection. Uh, remember that there are groups even today that do not believe that Christ was raised bodily. The classic example of that that is very common in Antigua are the Jehovah's Witness. They do not believe that Christ was bodily raised from the dead. When you ask them what happened to his body, they said that it was dissolved in gases in the in 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 the in the uh, in the cave, uh, so this is not something that um, that we can't relate to. Uh, it's not currently a, a problem within our society. You have a cultic group today who has refuted and rejected the bodily resurrection of Christ. I think that is vitally, vitally uh, important. And the third thing I would like to say is that this resurrection was unique. And when I say unique. There are other persons in the Bible who were raised from the dead, but were never given a glorified body and died again. And there are at least six or seven cases in the Bible where people were dead and they were resurrected, but they were not given the glorified body. They remained in the same body and eventually uh, uh, and died. Um, let's talk about the first one for just a moment. It was an actual resurrection. There's a guy called David Strauss who was uh, infidel, and then another uh, um, apostate called Paulus, who stressed that Jesus never died. And as I said before, he went into swoon and revived uh, within the, the tomb where he was buried. Um, the problem with that is um, one of two things. The centurion who was the expert there after he had um, 
seen what had taken place. Uh, he himself in John chapter 19, verse 33, and Mark chapter 15, verse 45, he himself declared that Christ was dead. As a matter of fact, uh, he went on the one side and he broke the foot of the, one of the thieves uh, because he was still alive. He went on the other side and he broke the foot the feet of the guy, the other guy, when he came to Christ, Christ was already dead. The other thing that is important is that the Bible says that when the centurion uh, used a spear to punch Christ, that blood and water came out. Any medical doctor will tell you that the pericardium of the heart was pierced. So his heart was actually stabbed. So there's no way that he was not dead. That alone would have killed him. That has nothing to do with the, the the beatings he had and the torture he had before. That enough was enough to kill him. But the fact that he actually had this uh, uh, punch in his side where the, the, the water and the blood came out. Every medical profession who, who, who studied this has said the pericardium that surrounded the, the heart was punched. It went through the ribs, punched it, and that is an indication that he was dead. So th- the, the scientific evidence, the physical evidence, it's a medical evidence, uh, even not looking at the brutality of what he went through, uh, disproves the idea that he just swooned and he was revived. The other thing is, if he did swoon and revive, how could he walk out? Have you mm-hmm. ever had nail, uh, and by the way, you're talking five to seven inches nail going through your heel, both heels. Yeah. Uh, you've been through where your, your back has been lacerated and all the, the, phys- the bone structure has been uh, exposed because it's been ripped. Uh, it's impossible to imagine you yourself if I've had a nail punch uh, for a day and you try walking the next day if it's even just a, a nail punch impossible but people are always looking for excuses and uh, people who are uh, want to go on in unbelief are always trying to concoct some kind of explanation uh, to try to get themselves from accepting the, the, the resurrection of Christ as you're thinking about that I've never put this together before but you know how they were so worried they went to I believe it was Pilate and they said we need to have a stone put there and yeah. guards posted if they weren't convinced that Jesus was dead, they would have made us think about that, and they would have said, we need to prove that he's dead so that he can't claim to be resurrected. Well, that makes sense, doesn't but it? But they, they accepted that he yeah. was dead, and they were worried that someone was going to steal the body to try and say that he right. had resurrected. Anyway, yeah, just a thought. No, you're right about it. The other thing is that, you know, uh, remember that the the, 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 uh, the tomb was sealed, the Roman yeah. seal. You cannot break that seal but under the penalty of capital punishment. In addition to that, they, you had guards guarding the 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 uh, the tomb, so when you take those factors into consideration, it's hard to understand a man like David Strauss, who's supposed to be a brilliant scholar, making such silly sentimental statements on this matter and coming up with this kind of a, a concoction that makes absolutely irrational, quite frankly. But again, unbelief always put people into irrationality. They never reason correctly because in the back of their minds, they want to prove a point that, yeah. uh, and, and that causes them to make so many mistakes. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've ever watched uh, news sometimes and wonder how people could make these silly mistakes and tell these lies so even knowing that at some point in time they're going to be discovered, and yet they they double down on it even though they know that what they've said is not true. Again, that's because of the darkened understanding. So they, they have no moral compunction now to, to guide them to make proper decisions. Uh, it's almost like the conscience is here so they can say anything, and it's it just like water off a duck's back, to be honest with you. The other thing about the, um, the, the it was a bodily resurrection, um, I mentioned that because Christian science do not teach a bodily resurrection. The Jehovah's Witness do not teach a bodily resurrection. The uh, the atheist and uh, writer Renan uh, 
he said that uh, what the disciples saw was hallucination. Hmm. Now, I mean, again, <laughs> this is so nonsensical, doesn't, doesn't uh, you know? And then the, a guy by the name of Keem uh, had the idea that Christ was raised spiritually. So it's important for the church to undermine the, re- the fact that this was a bodily resurrection. And the proof of that, Nathan, uh, in the scriptures, in Luke chapter 24, 39 to 40. Luke chapter 24, verse 39 to 40. And Luke was a doctor, correct? Correct. Luke chapter 24, verses 39 and 40. 39 and 40. Say, Behold my hand. This is Jesus speaking. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. So obvious. I mean, can you imagine a spirit telling you, touch my hand? I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I'm a spirit, but I got flesh and bone. I I do not understand to the day how any sensible person could sit in these kind of institutions, whether it be Jehovah or Christian science, and and uh, accept the fact that it was a, uh, a spiritual resurrection. When our Lord himself is saying to them, you know, I've got bones, I've got flesh, touch me, feel me. Uh, and he said the spirit doesn't have that. And yet look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. Matthew 28 and verse 9 says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And then they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now, how are you going to hold the feet of a spirit? You tell me. Hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, when you look at the logic of the the, 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 the biblical references, except this is post-resurrection, after he's resurrected, he has a body that can be held, that can be touched, that can be seen. So this is not a spiritual, uh, a spirit, this is not a spirit, this is a, this is a person in bodily form. Uh, look at Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 16, verse 10, and verse 10 says... For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, he quotes the same verse and said, Look, David could not have been talking about himself because David is gone and departed and he's seen corruption. But he spoke concerning the Messiah that his body would not be, his flesh would not suffer corruption in the grave. So it is very, very clear that God was going to resurrect that body. That body was not going to decay and disintegrate in the grave. So Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, quotes this very verse. Look at it. Acts chapter 2, verse 31. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 31. Maybe you can read verse 30 before and then read verse 31. Yeah, I can do that. Acts 2, 30 says, Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seen this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. I mean, that is so clear how anybody can take juxtapose Psalm 22 and uh, Acts chapter, Psalm 16 and Acts chapter 2. 
and see exactly what Peter says with the interpretation, what David was saying, I don't know how any person can come to their mind that it was not a physical resurrection. There has to be some level of spiritual blindness involved in this kind of interpretation. Look also, uh, Nathan, at uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 41 to 43. Luke chapter... 24. Luke 24. Verse 41 to 45. Luke 24, verse 41 says, And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Again, uh, I mean, so they can see a spirit eating and he's eating fish and bread. I, yeah. I'm just trying to think the, 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 the what I'm, I'm puzzled is how intelligent people can hold to that position when they have the clear presentation of the Bible on this matter. There has to be a spiritual blindness about this whole thing. This cannot be something that is natural and normal. Um, uh, you don't have to look at this one, but you remember in John chapter 20, verse 25, and then Luke chapter 24, he showed them his prince, and he said to Thomas, reach hither and put your hand in my prince and in my side. Now, if it was a spirit, how in the world would he be able to do that? I mean, by definition, a spirit is an eerie thing that has no substance to it. So how would you then be able to see the marks if it was a spirit? The other thing that I think is crucial now, and I'm going to look at this one, is John chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. All right, John 2, 19 to 21 says, Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty-six years was this temple in building, and yet wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. Very clear. Destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. And then he explains what temple? His body. I will raise my body up in three days. I mean, it is so logical and so obvious that again, Nathan, I am completely bamboozled how any religious group can ever countenance the idea there was not a physical bodily resurrection when he said, I am going to raise my body after three days. Uh, look at Matthew twelve forty. I think that's another good reference. Matthew twelve forty reads as follows. For as Jonas was three days... For as Jonah was three days and nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, the parallel there is Jonah, a man in the body of the whales, and the parallel there the same way Jonah, as a man, is in the body of the whale. I, as a man, will be in, 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 in the, and then will raise it in three days. Uh, I'm just saying the the evidence from Scripture, when you look at it logically and rationally, and what is actually said literally in the Scriptures. Uh, it, it 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 puzzles me that anyone would ever suggest that it was not an actual physical resurrection or bodily resurrection. The evidence is clearly in that matter. And the third thing we talked about, that this was a unique res- resurrection, in the sense that Christ is the first fruit of them that were raised from the dead. The first fruit that e- first person ever received this glorified body that he's talking about. But in Scripture, you have several other uh 
re- resurrections of bodies but not given the glorified body. For example, I mentioned the, the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17. There's a Shunammite son in 2 Kings chapter 4. There's Jairus' daughter in Matthew chapter 5. There's uh, the young man of name in Luke chapter 7. Lazarus in John chapter 11. Uh, Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. And Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. None of these uh, were fully glorified in their body. Clearly they died again and they await the resurrection. Christ is the only one that came out of the dead uh, and uh, has his, his body and is in heaven. So um, the resurrection of Christ is unique in that sense that uh, is not like these other ones who were resuscitated and revived and died again. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a passage of Scripture that you never to, to see, uh, to, to, to die again, quite it's completely eternal. That is what we're looking forward to when our Lord returns and we become like Him. We have a glorified body, etc. And we, we too will never, uh, we would live forever with Him. But uh, clearly this is something unique about His resurrection. There's no comparison whatsoever, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. This is a unique resurrection. And that's why He's called the first of them that came out of the dead. Uh, that's a unique expression used of him. We have a WhatsApp question that's come in from a listener in Antigua. Very practical to a lot of news headlines recently here in Antigua. Good night. There is a lot of talk on radio these days about marital rape. How can one address it biblically? Well, uh, what people I've heard people say that a man can't rape his wife. I've heard I've, I've actually heard a Christian tell me that already. I, I disagree with that. Right? Uh, sex has to be by consent; otherwise, it is rape. That has to do whether it's in marriage or outside of marriage. Uh, I think that men need to understand that a woman is not their property. Okay, it is true that uh, a man is the head of his wife. It is true of that, but it doesn't mean that he owns her. God owns her, he doesn't own her, and he needs to respect her. So I, I'm not too sure, uh, I haven't been listening to what's going on in the radio, I don't know what people have been talking about, so I'm, I'm kind there's, of oblivious to this matter. There's calls, uh, and I believe even within the Ministry of Social Transformation, to uh, put some sort of penalties or written uh, regulations in law in relation to being possibly even being able to prosecute marital rape? Well, I, I, I would have no problem with some kind of justice being meted out because, to my mind, I can't conceive of a man having his wife and raping her. I mean, she is not in the mood for whatever reason. Uh, she is not uh, prepared to have uh, intercourse with him a particular night or whatever. But let me just say this. When there's a problem of that nature, the problem lies with the man, it's not the woman. The quality of love in a marriage is dependent on the man. God says the man ought to love his wife. Uh, a man that loves his wife and really treats her the way she should be, normally a woman doesn't have any problem responding to him. The submission is the primary responsibility of the wife. So when you have rebellion in the home, the children rebelling, normally it's the attitude of the mother towards the husband. So God has strictly put the emphasis of the love atmosphere, the love ambience, that's the responsibility. And a man has to find out how to cultivate that within his marriage. So if he's finding that his wife is not responsive to him, uh, there has to be some reason. I mean, unless she had to be a hermaphrodite or something, or there's something wrong with her. Maybe she, by the way, when people have diabetes and have other forms of sickness, the sexual um, prowess declines. That's a, that's a, that's a reality. Uh, the, the interest is not there as it used to be. So there could be a physical problem why it is not there. But again, still, 
uh, a man needs to create the atmosphere. And Nathan, one of the biggest problems men make, quite frankly, is that they don't even call your wife during the day. They don't speak to her during the day. They treat her like a piece of rag. And then at nights, when it's time, she wants to jump in the bed and feel <laughs> as though she can minister to him. The greatest sex tool is the mind. Okay, that's the greatest sex tool, the mind. And uh, the man has to, uh, if he is interested in having relations with his wife, he ought to warm her up and prepare her for that eventuality. But he can't expect that he treats her cold throughout the day and somehow she becomes warm at night. That doesn't happen. Men need a lot to learn. And a lot of what they've learned on the streets and under the lights and in the beaches and in the bar rooms is completely false information and they need to really get a good Christian book maybe maybe the act of marriage by Tim LaHaye recommend that very strongly uh, that helps you to understand a little bit about this, the intimacy within marriage but I think it would be legitimate in my judgment if the um, there were some things that put in place because I can't imagine that brutality how does a woman who's raped by a man want to have relations with him again I don't know yeah. so it, it must be a terrible experience if that is happening in Antigua or any part and I think something should be done uh, to give the wife legal recourse at the law uh, to really deal with those kind of matters it just, just doesn't feel fear, fear, fear uh, doesn't seem right to me and what example is that setting to the children because certainly if rape is happening in the home uh, children live in different parts of the home in different bedrooms they must hear certain noises and certain screams and stuff like that imagine the impact that's having on their evaluation of what sexuality is all about wow. see? it's a terrible thing really really terrible thing thank you I, I want to balance yeah. this Nathan because it might seem as though I'm just hitting against men uh, Paul makes it quite clear in Corinthians chapter 7 that a woman should meet the legitimate needs of her husband. Uh, Paul says the only reason where there should be any restriction on intercourse within marriage is if the two of them have a consent for a period of time, for prayer, for fasting. God has designed a man and a woman to be able to meet each other's needs. And uh, and uh, so I think that a woman needs to understand she has an obligation as well. Paul said the man doesn't own his body, not as a woman. That means that each has a right to be able to... A woman should be able to take the initiative in sex. A man should be able to take the initiative in sex in marriage, right? That's what Paul is talking about. It should not all be in a man. Uh, a woman should be wise enough to understand that uh, she, she has that right as well. But she also needs... She has obligations. Uh, so she also needs to inform herself biblically as to what her responsibilities are as a, as a wife. And uh, so it works both ways. Uh, but I haven't been hearing about this thing, and I'm, 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 if it's happening, something needs to be done to help protect women from being brutalized uh, by men. For the individual or the listener who says, Pastor, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian, uh, does the wife still have, who doesn't claim to be a Christian, does she still have an obligation to the husband, or that's just for Christians? Because Once two people are married, uh, the biblical obligations are irrespective of whether you're Christian or non-Christian. A husband who is a non-Christian, he is supposed to set the tone of love within this relationship. The wife is supposed to set the tone of submission for the children, to be an example. So that is standard. That doesn't change. That's like saying that marriage is only for Christians. Right? And uh, why would God uh, in the Bible condemn fornication, adultery, and say that we're going to be given a count for that if he did not see it as something that is contrary to his will and within uh, the context of his design for humankind? So, um, no, these obligations fall upon both men and women. I would recommend to, to men, again, a book uh, that is called The Five Love Languages by Gary Smiley. 
And men get that book, it's worth its weight in gold, and it talks about the five love languages. And you might be speaking French and your wife knows German, so you've got to learn how to, uh, what language she, she feels that makes her feel love. And she got to learn your language. Maybe you can buy a book for her, and you buy a book, and maybe you can read it together and discuss things together. But we need to get out of this, 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 um, this kind of um, inhumane, um, brutal way of looking at sex, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And by the way, if a man forces sex upon a woman, chances are he can do tremendous damage because her body cannot lubricate uh, uh, to make it um, frictionless sensitive and therefore there's going to be a lot of damage done in the process and that will bury into her mind and the next encounter she'll have a hard time responding so you're not helping yourself man you're actually creating more problems for yourself if that's the direction you're going thank you to the individual who sent in that question do you have a question that you would like asked from a biblical perspective, answered from a biblical perspective? You can call one 462 7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 1454 You can also go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, Click on the Facebook Live video feed and right there on your device while you are watching the program, behind the scenes, listening to the program, you can also on your device comment in the comment section and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy on the air in a timely manner. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.32. We've got about 28 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. And as Easter Sunday is this coming weekend, we are talking talking about the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pastor, there are some even who claim to be so-called Christian, I'll just call them religious leaders, who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are some of their alternative uh, views to this? Well, one thing that shocks me is that you have very highly intelligent men that come up with theories and ideas that I find that are so childish and so amateurish and so puerile that I find it difficult to believe that these men could actually reread the book that they've written and not feel some sense of embarrassment. I'm very convinced that unbelief is prejudice against facts and evidence. And uh, some of these new theories and views that they have to explain away the resurrection um, just is incredibly stupid to be very honest with you uh, let me give you at least four or five of them one has to do that uh, Joseph of Arimathea in whose uh, tomb our Lord was buried that he is the one that took the body the question is why did he take it when did he take it and where did he take it uh, you remember that he was a very devout Jewish person he as a Jew would never break the Sabbath so when did he take it so there's no way he could have taken it uh, on the, the crucifixion or the Sabbath. So when did they take it? Um, the other thing is, uh, as we mentioned before, you had the seal, the Roman seal on the on the stone. You had guards there. Um, how come none of the guards ever indicated that Joseph stole it? So it doesn't make any sense. But you know who, who came up with that theory? A guy called Dr. Hugh Schoenfield. And he wrote the book called The Passover Plot. I don't know if you ever uh, There's a movie made about it. But he uh, said that uh, Christ instructed Joseph of Arimathea that when he died, that he would remove his body so that people think that he's a Messiah. So what's the point of claiming that you're a Messiah if you're already dead? <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, 
and then the, the question was asked, well, how do you explain people seeing Christ after, if he stole their body, how do you explain this? He said it was a, a matter of, mis- uh, what do you call it, um, um, uh, what do you call it, mistaken identity. So every time Christ appeared 12 times after the resurrection, in every case, it was a mistaken identity. So who was the person imitating Christ all this time? <laughs> but didn't he rep- uh, appear sometimes to like 500? Yeah, that will come to it in the book of uh, yeah. Corinthians chapter 15. So that's an awful lot of mistaken identity. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, what I'm saying to you, when you read, you cannot believe a man who is a doctor now. This is not a uh, idiot or a clown or ignoramus or some kind of moron. This is a guy who is a uh, or actually doctor in philosophy, a doctor in letters. But yet he writes such nonsense. And I think that because unbelief is so prejudiced, it choose to ignore the facts and the evidence and always come up with uh, ideas that might seem rational to the infidel but seem quite stupid to the person who is dealing with facts. That's why I said there's a kind of a blindness that is there and clearly none that he says makes any sense. To, uh, uh, even my, my uh, um, Sunday school children, if I had any, would be able to say this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right? The other one is um, the Roman Jewish authorities took the body. <laughs> well, think about that for just a moment, right? If they took the body, why did they accuse the disciples? Uh, they came up with a concoction that the disciples stole the body. So if they took the body, why would they then turn around and accuse the disciples of it? And by the way, if they took the body, why did they not present the body then to destroy the whole Christian faith about the resurrection? Yeah, you be know? counterproductive. Yeah, counterproductive. It, it, but again, this is unbelief trying to find an excuse because it's prejudice against facts. Um, the other one is that the disciples stole the body. Uh, several things with that. Uh, number one, no one that denies the resurrection, uh, all of them said that the disciples believed the resurrection, even the atheists who writes against the resurrection, all of them admit that these men were men who are credible witnesses and they were not people inclined to tell lies. So that in itself is contrary to even their standard, that these were honest men, they were not prone to tell lies. The other thing that Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 1, that we uh, did not furnish, uh, follow evil devised fables. In other words, Peter saying we didn't follow uh, myths, of, uh, we followed the truth in this whole matter. And the other thing is that um, you would mean that these guys would have persisted in a falsehood and a hoax and would have died for falsehood. That doesn't yeah. make any sense whatsoever. So ex- uh, explanation number three, again, um, doesn't make any credible sense as far as that is concerned. Fourth one, the women went to the wrong tomb. It was so dark, the women didn't know what they were doing. All right, if they went to the wrong tomb then, why did you not go to the right tomb and take the body and show that it disappeared? I mean, the... the, the, the the irrationality of what they're saying, the, the arguments are so silly, there's not really, really countenance in. And then the other one that I mentioned before is the swoon theory. And this was one came up with uh, by Renan that um, Christ never really died, uh, but he fainted and was resuscitated because of the spices and the cool temperature. And then he walked away. The question is, if he walked away, where did he go, etc., etc. Um, all of these are preposterous um, 
explanations of unbelief that they're trying to uh, undermine Christianity. But anyone that looks at them on face value and compare them with the evidence presented in Christianity will see that there's no real comparison whatsoever. These are bogus hoaxes that make absolutely no sense. I remember reading a book not too long ago, I believe it was by John MacArthur, talking about the 12 disciples. And he was pointing out the fact that and I forget exactly how it was worded, but the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the change in the men, these disciples. Uh, in Sunday school, just last Sunday, we read the verse where it says that Jesus was arrested in the garden and the disciples fled. Mm-hmm. They were hiding. Peter is cursing and denying Jesus yeah. in the eyesight of Jesus, the man that he was worshiping. Right. But then after the resurrection, these men, like you mentioned, are willing to die, willing to live outcast lives, willing to sacrifice their families and everything. Mm -hmm. That is one of the classic um, explanations that defends the resurrection, this uh, marvelous transformation. Men who were cowards are now courageous preachers of the word. Uh, A man who can't even say to a young girl, yeah, I knew this Jesus is now standing before 5,000 on the day of Pentecost and preaching to people saying, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And and even when they were beaten and told, listen, you must not speak and talk about this man and his death. He said, we must obey God rather than man. I mean, there's no explanation that these cowards have become such bold saints. And that transformative effect uh, is evidential proof that they actually truly saw Jesus, believed in Jesus, and that he was really resurrected. I remember in Acts chapter 1, when they were selecting someone to replace Judas, that one of the preconditions of being an apostle, you had to have witnessed the resurrection of Christ. You had to be saying, I saw him, I saw him, I knew he wa- who he was, he was dead and he's resurrected. I mean, this is, this is overwhelming proof, to be very honest with you. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We've got 20 minutes in tonight's episode still. If you have a question, feel free to call. We would love for you to call. 268-462-7420 and ask your question live on the air. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 1454 Or you can send your question on Facebook Live on the video feed and we will pass it along to Pastor Murphy live on the air. What are some of the evidences for the resurrection of Christ? Well, if you read any theological books or, or read any books in apologetics that deal with this subject, I mean, the evidence is so overwhelming and so multifaceted that, uh, as I said before, some of the greatest legal minds having examined the evidence have come to the, uh, the conclusion that the forensic evidence, if presented in courts, is irrefutable. There's no way you can contest the fact that this actually happened. Uh, let me just mention some of the evidence. Uh, the, the one, of course, uh, would be uh, that it's very obvious there was an empty tomb. Uh, uh, all the other explanations that try to offer a solution to this problem are pure fabrications that make absolutely no sense. Uh, and the fact that the, our Lord was seen afterwards, the empty tomb itself is evidence. I remember that when uh, Peter and John entered the empty tomb, they saw the 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 um, death the, yeah, the the bandage whatever it was wrapped around in remember it was like a cocoon 
it was in one corner, the body was gone, but it was not as though it was unwrapped, as though you unwrapped it. It was there laid. That, that's the idea in the book of John in, in the Greek language. Uh, so clearly, the body came out of the wrappings, and the wrappings were there as though it's like, it's like you're taking a, um, a balloon and you fill it with water. And the water disappears, but you see that the balloon it was it didn't burst. Somehow it came out. Okay, uh, that is similar to what happened there. That's why the evidence is so so clear. So the empty tomb is one. The other one is you can't deny the post-resurrection appearance of Christ. There are at least ten to twelve post-resurrection appearances that um, could not have been staged. Um, we don't have to look at all of these, but there's John twenty. 10 to 11 to 17. There's Matthew chapter 28, verse 9 to 10. There's Luke 24, 13 to 35. And there's also John chapter 20, 26 to 29. John chapter 21, verse 1 to 23. And of course, the great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul talks about Christ's resurrection. So the post-resurrection, uh, and remember that according to Luke, Acts, that was 40 days that our Lord remained on planet Earth after the resurrection. And Paul, he said he gave many infallible proofs that he was raised from the dead. Uh, and I'm told that the word that is used there for infallible proofs uh, has the, the language of law courts. That is the most... Um, the greatest forensic proof that something is true, that's the language that is used there in that passage in Acts chapter two, chapter 1, about 40 days, giving infallible proof that he'd raised from the dead. Um, the other thing that we can talk about, and there are many, uh, Nathan, is that the Old Testament predicted the resurrection in two ways. We already look at Acts chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 16, where you have a specific statement that the body of the Messiah would not remain in the grave and see corruption, but God would uh, deliver that body. The other thing is that it also indicates the resurrection of Christ by what you may call logical inference. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's a clear teaching in the Bible that the Messiah must die. Isaiah chapter 53. He's gone to the slaughter and he will die. Um, Psalm chapter 22. He's pierced. My bones are out of place. Uh, so there are clear indications that the Messiah is going to die in Psalm 22 and and and, and uh, Isaiah chapter 53. But it's also clear indication that the Messiah is going to reign upon the throne of David from Jerusalem. So if the Messiah is going to reign and he's going to die, he has to be resurrected. Mm-hmm. So the inferential proof is that. Even if even if it doesn't say exactly in, in passage that he's going to raise from the dead, the fact that he's going to die and he's going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years, it means he has to be raised from the dead. So it's not only direct specific verses, there's also inferential evidence that indicates that the Messiah it, it was going to be raised from the dead. Uh, and that is seen in, in um, look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah 13 and verse, verse one. 1 says, In that day... There shall be a fountain open to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. Yeah. If you read the whole context, it's talking about the day when the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to reign, etc., etc. And then look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 reads as follows. And in the days of the kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom 
which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. If you remember the, the, the uh, particular vision that he had, and uh, it's about the image and being struck with a stone, and he's saying that the stone is, is, is the Messiah who's coming to destroy them, and then he's going to reign. So he's saying that the Messiah is going to reign. But, but let's also look at another key verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The government is one day could be upon his shoulder because he's going to rule on planet Earth for a thousand years in his millennial rule. And the very prophecy about his birth tells you that he's going to reign. But we know one thing, after his birth, he died. So if he's going to reign, and he never reigned when he was alive in his incarnation, he's going to reign, the government will be upon his shoulders. In the indication, even inherent in that verse, is the idea that the Messiah is going to be born, he's going to die, and one day he's going to reign. So how would you respond to the individual who says, Pastor, the fault in your logic there is the fact that, yes, the whoever wrote these verses expected that he would reign in Jerusalem as a king, but plans changed and he was killed? Well, again, it depends on what, if you know what the Bible is about. We know one thing, that the Messiah had to die for the sins of the world first. We know that he's going to sit on the throne of David. Luke chapter 2, and talking about when his birth, that he would sit on the throne of his father David. That hasn't happened yet. And that was the expectation of the Jews, that the Messiah is coming to reign. They didn't see the part where the Messiah would die for the sins of the world, because to them, the problem was the Roman people who had taken over their territory, and now they want to get rid of the Romans and they set up his kingdom. They never saw the sin problem. That's the problem between man and God. Even today, the Jews doesn't understand that the real issue between man and God is this whole sin problem. How is this sin problem ever going to be solved unless the Messiah comes and deal with the sin problem first? So it has to do with an understanding of what the Bible teaches in respect to the whole matter of salvation and the whole matter of the millennial rule of Christ. They're not two things that are separate and they're separate and distinct, but they're not two things that conflict with each other once you understand what was the purpose of Christ coming first to die for the sins and afterwards he's coming back to rule. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.48. We've got 10 minutes left in tonight's episode. If you have a question, hurry up and send it in so that we can answer it from a biblical perspective. You can send it in via WhatsApp or text message to 1-268-782-1454. No one's on the phone line, so you can also call 1-268-462-7420. That's the number that will put you live on the air. Uh, as we continue to talk about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, Pastor, anything else that you want oh, to mention? Oh, there's several other things. The other, th- the other thing is the witness of the apostles. Okay. Uh, you take the four evangelical gospels that we have, uh, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, each one of those uh, in Matthew 28, Luke chapter 16, Luke 24, and John chapter 20, each one of them are witnesses to the fact that the resurrection actually occurred. So you've got men who were eyewitnesses who are there. And remember, um, uh, Nathan, that it only takes one witness to prove a murder. Hmm. Think about that for just a moment. And we haven't talked about uh, Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul said at one time Christ appeared to 500. So you, t- you add 500 to these four, 504 people, 
you get 504 people say, I saw this, and believe me, you're going to jail. There's, there's no way that you're going to escape the sanction of the legal system because it only requires the maximum amount of witnesses that's required in a law court for any matter is seven. Okay? And it depends on the, the nature of the problem. We'll talk about that later. But you've got also uh, another proof, uh, Nathan. It's not only just the witness of the, evangel- the evangelist, but uh, it's also the fact that Christ himself predicted his own resurrection. Look at Matthew um, sixteen twenty-one. Let's look at one or two verses there. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 21 says to us, From that time forth begin Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go on to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Again, so if you deny the resurrection, what are you doing? You're actually uh, calling the credibility of Christ into account. You're denying his infallibility. You're denying his integrity, and you're saying that he didn't know what he was saying, and he was speaking a lie. But again and again uh, in Scripture, you'll describe, see that he emphasized the resurrection. Look at 17, say Matthew. Let's stay in Matthew for just a moment. Verse 19, verse 9, 17, 9. Matthew 17, 9 says, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. I'm going to rise from the dead. I mean, how many times? Look at chapter 17, the same book, and look at verse 22 and 23. Seventeen, twenty-two, and 23 says, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. Look, and at, they ver- were look at chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. Just, let's stay in Matthew for just a moment. Chapter 20, verse 19 and 20. Uh, chapter 20, verses 18. 18 and 19. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Once again, one last one, 26, verse 32. Matthew 26, verse 32 says, But after I am risen again... I will go before you into Galilee. After I've risen again. I mean, in one book alone, you've just got about six different times that the Lord emphasized, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And no one, no one can discount the resurrection who does not impugn the integrity of Christ and label him as a prevaricator, a liar. And that is a serious charge. That's why I made a statement on ZDK this morning. Nobody can be a Christian who does not believe in the resurrection. I repeat that. Nobody can be a true, genuine, authentic Christian who does not believe in the resurrection. If a man says, I believe in the death of Christ but not in his resurrection, mark it down. He's a fake and a fraud and apostate. He's not a true believer. He doesn't have salvation. He doesn't have the gospel. He has a truncated gospel. The gospel is Christ's death and what? Christ's resurrection. So you don't have the true gospel. Now, if the church were to speak so plainly on these matters. There are people sitting in churches today and pastors in pulpits today who would say, I believe in his death, but I don't believe in his resurrection. And the reason why they do that, they don't want to be, they don't want to uh, seem as though they're contradicting some natural law and going against scientific evidence that a man can't rise from the dead. 
Christianity is a supernatural religion. It's something that God does. And if it were not, we might be like any other religion. But the church should put people out of it who say, I don't believe in the resurrection. They're not Christians. They're not part of the body of Christ. If the church would take that kind of a bold position, it would bring some integrity back to the church and let people understand that we truly believe the book and believe the Bible. But I'm afraid that in many cases that's not the situation. As a result, uh, you've got people in the church who want to believe anything, and they can believe anything and still be part of the church. That's a, a real serious error on our part. We have a question that's come in from a listener, and this is from someone who uh, sincerely believes the Bible. They attend services on Sunday, but friends are pressuring them to attend on a Saturday. Their question is, Pastor, the Ten Commandments say that we are to work six days and the seventh belongs to the Lord. So it seems to make sense that if I work six days, that Saturday is the Sabbath day. How can a lot of churches go against the Ten Commandments and have the Sabbath day on Sunday when the seventh day is supposed to be wholly given unto the Lord? Are you absolutely sure that Saturday is the Sabbath? Saturday is the Sabbath. That's not a dispute with anybody. Uh, there's no Sabbath wasn't changed to Sunday, etc. But what you need to understand very clearly is read Second Corinthians chapter three, where the law has been set aside as a basis for God dealing with humankind. If you read the book of Hebrews chapter four, you'll see that the Sabbath was a symbol of the rest that Christ would offer. There was a shadow of the substance to come. Okay, Every day is a day to the Lord for the believer. It's not just one day. But I think it's important for Christians, the same way within the commandments, the spirit of the law is that one out of seven belong to him. The church, in honor of Christ's resurrection, uh, and this is seen also in the New Testament. I don't have time to go through that, but it's very, very significant that Christ was raised on the first day of the week. The church was founded on the first day of the day of Pentecost. If you were to also read um, Acts chapter, I think it's 19 or 20, where Paul met with believers on the first day of the week when Eutychus fell down from the window. If you read in Corinthians, you'll find that Paul told them on the first day of the week, receive the offering, collect the offering. And in John Revelations, he's on he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's a unique word. The only two times in the Bible that particular word is used, and the translation is used, is not the day of the Lord. That's a different word that is used. The word is Lordian Day, just like the Lordian Supper, showing you quite frankly that John is referring to the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day. Uh, but this is thing that you've got to settle in your own heart. Uh, Paul says, let no man judge you in any matter. Uh, in, this mat- you know, in these matters, let every man be fully persuaded in his heart. I'm fully persuaded that we are worshiping on the correct day in honor of the Lord's resurrection. Uh, I'm very, very sure about this matter that John was referring to be on the Sunday of the Lord's Day. And if I had time, we've done this program before, I can take you back to the first century and take you from people who were disciples of John, like Polycarp and so on, and show that they met on the first of the week. This is historical data from their quotations that they gave themselves. So the idea that has created a lot of problems today is that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has created the bogus uh, interpretation saying that it's the Catholic Church that started the, 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 uh, the, the first of the week. That's not true. That's not true. 
Uh, and history can I can prove that from history, but it's just that people uh, when they hear something and, and now remember this that the Seventh Day Adventists came out of the Baptist movement and uh, the Millerite movement the, uh, so on and so forth, and uh, all of this idea of the Sabbath did not come from their study of the Bible. It came from the idea that Ellen G. White says she was taken up to heaven and she saw the Ten Commandments in the uh, in the tabernacle in heaven and she was able to look in and see that there was a halo around the fourth commandment that didn't happen that didn't happen uh, read her writings and read the book the white light by mccray and you'll see that a lot of what she wrote quite frankly are borrowed and there's a lot of plagiarism involved but yet she's given all kind of credit that the lord told her and angels told her and so on she's been discredited as a prophet but it's hard for people to face facts when you've been told something you've believed in for all your life and then you you've discovered that that's not true uh, that's the difficulty that people have. So I'm just saying to you, be fully persuaded in your own mind on this matter, but do some research, some serious research on the matter before you jump into any matter that you would get at some point in your life. In the last 30 seconds, Pastor, what is the significance of the importance of Christ's resurrection? Two things quickly. Number one, it was a vindication that he was God in the flesh. Romans chapter 1, 14. It was through the resurrection that it manifested he was the Son of God. And number two, there's no gospel without the resurrection. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. Those are the two most significant facts about the resurrection. And you already said this, but I want to clarify it. Finish strong. Can I reject the, re- the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ <clears throat> and be a Christian? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We wish you a happy and safe Easter weekend as you celebrate. Stay tuned to CRL. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.